thank you. I've been looking forward to this moment since Wednesday afternoon when I had a chance to share this with you. Um, Wednesday we saw Emma do something that we had never seen before. She was in her recliner and had finished therapy and her respiratory vest and usually she falls asleep after that because it's, it's exhausting and it's tiring for her and she had fallen into we believe a fairly deep sleep and that's when we noticed that her legs had begun moving in ways we had never seen it was almost like she was having a dream where she was running and her knees were going up and down and then even side to side um, it was amazing in fact, I had stepped in the kitchen. I heard Jody go, Mark, you got to get here and see this. And just look at her legs. Look at her legs. And so it was just amazing. We have seen some movement in her feet, but nothing like we saw Wednesday. So um, I praise God for that. So either we figure she was either, you know, dreaming of she was playing basketball or it was volleyball and she's getting ready to move to the side and jump, which she never really did a whole lot. But uh, we are... Eve will get that. Um, yeah. So uh, we just praise God for that. And just keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying. Can I say it again? Keep praying. Please do. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Now last week I started a three-part series just focusing on the resurrection. Of course, next Sunday's Easter. And you'll see in your bulletin the events we have planned, special worship opportunities where we can gather to focus our minds on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And I hope that you'll be a part of those opportunities. But what I wanted to do in three sermons was just to ask this question. What impact does the resurrection have on how we live each day? Typically, we think of the resurrection and we approach it in terms of, well, I'm going to preach a sermon or read something to prove that it happened. And there's certainly a necessity for that and a place for that that's very important. Or we only focus on the resurrection thinking about the future. Very important. Once again, the Apostle Paul roots our hope for a future resurrection in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So those are both very important approaches to the resurrection. But I wanted to deal with some texts that wrestle with, okay, what's that mean to you right now? What does it mean to me? So last week we looked at the hope we gain in affliction, the power of God to give hope in that. And today I want us to deal with this issue of equipping. How the resurrection teaches us, shows us that God will and has equipped every believer to do His will. The passage that we're looking at this morning are two verses at the end of Hebrews. And in these two verses, the preacher of Hebrews pulls together all the major themes that he has been preaching on as he has laid this information before the church. What we're about to read is a benediction slash doxology slash prayer. Leave it to a preacher to get three things in two verses. Amen. <laughs> so he's praising God. He's giving a conclusion to the letter. And then he's also lifting up a prayer on behalf of the congregation. Let's look at it. Chapter 13, verses 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, 
through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we add our doxology to the words written by this preacher. We give glory to Christ who reigns forever and ever. And we ask you, Father, to speak to us today as we have worshipped you, as we are acknowledging that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We bow before you praying for grace. Father, we ask for grace that we may live with confidence in you. And we will trust you so that we will step out in faith and live obediently. Grant these things we pray, Father. Through the name and the power of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, next week is not only Easter Sunday, but it's also the culmination of an emphasis that we began almost 30 days ago. The who's your one. It's a very simple emphasis. We asked you to think of one person that to your knowledge does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And we asked you first to begin praying for them, which we as a church have come together and doing on Sunday nights. Our prayer group has been praying for the names. On Wednesdays, we pray for each person. And then we asked you to go another step and at the least invite them to come with you to worship next Sunday. And our ultimate goal was this, that you would share the gospel of Jesus Christ with that person. Well, this morning I got a report from one person and she began by saying, my, my nephew this week, he's been diagnosed with cancer and, and people were visiting with him and he prayed to receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And then she looked at me and she said with tears in her eyes, Mark, he was my one. Do you see God working? Do you see God? Now, let's don't give a half-hearted applause. Let's either praise God all the way or not. All right? Let's don't give God a tennis clap. That's what we're after. To know that God is working to bring salvation to people as we are obedient. But now here's where our flesh and the evil one will work against us. It's the final week. What are you going to say to them? What, what, what if they ask me a question and I don't know how to answer? And then the devil will use this. Who am I? To share the gospel with them. I want them to be saved. I'm praying for them. But, but who am I? I mean, I, I have my struggles. Who am I? I don't know what to say. Well, this morning I want you to see that God has equipped you to fulfill His will. And if it is His will that the gospel be proclaimed, church, He has equipped us to do that. God has not given us this task and said, good luck, figure it out. What we see from Hebrews is that God equips His children to be obedient. Because the, the people who first heard Hebrews struggled with the same things. Now their questions were given in the context of persecution. The church is being oppressed. At, at best, believers are starting to be ostracized, pushed to the side of society because they are professing Jesus as their Lord and Savior. At worst... At worst, they're losing their lives. Their property being confiscated. Time in jail. And so the questions have to come to them. Will I stand firm when the test comes? When I'm called out for being a Christian, will I be faithful? Will I witness even though it may cost me everything? So I think at the culmination of this letter, the preacher's giving a reassurance that yes, God has equipped you. 
Now, this passage, these two verses really follow this pattern. The first verse gives the basis for the request. So, chapter, I'm sorry, verse 20 is the basis, the foundation for the request that he makes in verse 21. Now, the request is easy to see. Now, may the God of peace, skip down to verse 21, equip you with everything good. But he doesn't want us to see that this is just some wishful thinking. He wants us to know that this request that God will equip us is rooted in who God is and what God has done. That's why verse 20 teaches us this. We need to get in our thinking, in our minds, and to know that God will give us exactly what we need because of who He is and what He has done. This is where your theology is so vitally important. Whether you realize it or not, you will live and react based on what you believe. That's why time and time again the scripture goes back to these truths about who God is so that we will remember them. Now look where he begins in verse 20. Now, may the God of peace, that is the God who gives peace. God is the source of peace. He is the the source from which the stream of serenity flows. Peace refers to harmony, tranquility. Anybody need a little of that these days? A little peace of mind? A little bit of serenity that in the midst of turmoil there is this confident expectation that God is at work? That in the midst of stressors in life there is this reassurance that I need not fear, I need not be afraid even if the mountains are thrown into the sea, which they may be blown down this afternoon, I understand. But guess what, church? You don't have to worry. You don't have to be afraid. God is the God of peace. Anxious? God's the God of peace. Stressed? God is the God of peace. Guilty? God is the God of peace. And our problem is this. You and I long for peace, but we seek it in other places and from other people rather than God. That's where idolatry comes in. If God is the God of peace, which He is, and you and I seek serenity, if we seek things to calm us that are apart from God, we are setting ourselves up for failure and we are practicing idolatry. When our peace is tied to something other than God, our fear will rise. You'll not find peace in anything other than God, and this is why. Your fear will increase because of this. What happens... When that person or that object or that thing that gives you peace is taken away. This world is transient. And if it's having something that gives you peace, what happens when that something is gone or breaks? If your peace is based upon a person, that person leaves. Where a relationship is severed. Where's your peace? Peace that is founded on anything other than God is shaky at best. And in the end, it's destructive. Mary Jo Sells is a sociological researcher. She was working on a book several years ago researching the effects of social media on our society. So she sat down at a mall in Los Angeles and was interviewing a group of teenage girls. Now, What she found wasn't just applicable to teenagers, but that's where she started. So she was talking with them about social media, and one of the girls absolutely rattled Mary Jo Sale's world because this girl looked at her and she said this, social media is destroying our lives. It's very curious. 
So Mary, Dr. Sales looked at her and said, well, why? Why don't you stop using it? Seems reasonable. If something's destroying you, let it go. Smash it. Get rid of it. The girl's response was instant. Because if we got rid of social media, we would have no life. Now I want you to understand that what that girl is saying is echoed in the life of every person in some way. The issue may not be social media, but it may be this. As long as I have this, I can breathe easy. As long as I have the right job, things are good. As long as I have this relationship, oh, I don't have to sweat it. But understand, what you're doing is you're setting up that job, that person, as an idol. And idols will ultimately destroy us. That's why for peace, we have to come back to say, our God is the God of peace. Now, when you will become fearful, because Satan will attack you, your flesh will attack you to say, you can't really trust God. If God loved you and He's the God of peace, why is He letting these things happen to you? He wants you to think that God's faithfulness is contingent upon circumstances. So, the preacher of Hebrews now gives us something to root God's identity as the peace giver in. And look what it is. Look at the next phrase, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. So it is the God of peace who has done what? Who has brought Jesus from the dead. If we begin to doubt the ability of God to bring peace to our lives, the preacher of Hebrews says, remember, God brought Jesus from the dead. There is no circumstance you have that is greater than God's ability to overcome it and to sustain you through it. But the terminology is very curious. The preacher doesn't use the word resurrected. He doesn't even use the term raised up. Instead he says brought again. It's the only place in the New Testament where this phrase is used in reference to the resurrection. It's a word that means to bring from a lower place to a higher place. And it was used specifically in regards to the exodus where God brought out the children of Israel from Egypt into the promised land. So he's drawing this imagery that when Jesus was in the grave, he was in the throes of death and slavery to sin for our sake. But what did God do? God brought him out, delivered him to bring him into the promised land to remind us that when things seem darkest, the light of the gospel is at work because our God never fails. So he's saying that all of this is by the intervention of God. When sin looked like it had destroyed Jesus, God intervened. When death was taking a victory lap, God intervened. When evil was exalting itself, God intervened. So if God can intervene and raise Jesus from the dead, then guess what? He can equip you and I for service. He doesn't fail. He holds up as the pinnacle of God's demonstration of His power and peace, the resurrection, as if to say, if I can do this, what is your problem then? It's like somebody saying, I've climbed Mount Everest. I think I can lead a hike up Buffalo Mountain. Such is our God. But then he goes another step. He has brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus, the sovereign Lord. But look at the next phrase that describes Jesus. Who is this one that was brought again from the dead? The great shepherd of the sheep. 
He goes back to this title of Jesus as the shepherd. Jesus described himself as this in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. It's interesting that both Moses and David are referred to as shepherds. But notice he says, the great shepherd. Part of the book of Hebrews is to show the supremacy of Jesus above all things. To show that Jesus is supreme to angels, Jesus is supreme to the law, Jesus is supreme to the priest, Jesus is supreme to the Sabbath, Jesus is supreme, period. And then he comes back and he says, Moses and David, as great as they were, they were shepherds who guided the people of God, but Jesus is the shepherd par excellence who guides and protects his people. He is still shepherding. And not only that, but he says... By the blood of the eternal covenant. Don't overlook that little phrase, by. Because this is saying, how did God raise again or bring again Jesus from the dead? That word by is instrumental. Now this has caused no small amount of debate. We know it was the power of God at work that brought Jesus up. Romans 1 teaches us that. But once again, he is showing us here that the covenant... That God has brought about the new covenant in Jesus is superior to the previous covenant. And this covenant is superior because it is eternal. Now covenant language is foreign to us. But I want to give just a very brief definition to help us understand covenant. Covenant is more serious than a contract. A covenant can only be broken by death. That's why when... We perform a marriage ceremony. We conclude by saying, till death do us part. A covenant does two things. It defines a relationship and it sets the boundaries for a relationship. Let's go back to what I mentioned a moment ago. Marriage is an example of a covenant. Marriage defines the relationship. When I perform a wedding ceremony, and most pastors do this, they will this, do you such and such take Bubba to be your husband? Yes, I do. Bubba, do you take... Uh, Mary Joe to be your wife. Guess what we've done? We've defined the relationship. Husband and wife. And then we set the boundaries for it. And keeping unto them, keeping from all others, keeping only unto them, promise to love, cherish, comfort, support. So we've said, here are the boundaries, husband and wife, or here's the definition, now here's the boundaries, them and them alone. That's the idea of covenant. God has redefined our relationship with Him. Where we were once enemies, He has redefined the relationship to say you are no longer enemies, but now you are friends. We were once alienated from God, but now we are restored. We have been adopted. We were once enemies of God, but now we are children of God. He has redefined our relationship by His power, and He has set the boundaries. What is that? Be holy as I am holy. I am, I, we are God's people, therefore live as such. He has redefined the covenant. He has established it in Jesus. And that's why he says that it is eternal. It never ends. Remember, it can only be broken by death. Guess what? Is Jesus ever going to die? Let's say it again. Is Jesus ever going to die? Been there, done that, overcame it. So our relationship with Him is steady and firm. That's one of the reasons I believe in the doctrine of eternal security. 
that I am secure not because I am able to do everything perfectly but because God has made a covenant with me in which he has bound himself to me that says if I die the covenant is broken but our God is eternal so therefore even if I am faithless he is faithful for he cannot deny himself praise God Amen the resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us that the offering that Jesus made in his sacrifice has been accepted by God. It's verification. Because otherwise it becomes this legal figure. How do you know you've been forgiven by God? How do you know Jesus' sacrifice was accepted? We know because of the resurrection. The resurrection shows that Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable unto God. Confirmation's a beautiful thing, isn't it? One of the things that Jody and I have learned on this journey is how to be on the phone for a long time when you're dealing with equipment and things like that. I think our record is like an hour and a half on hold. And you just learn to deal with it and say, Lord, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Help me to remember this when they answer that. We've been dealing on getting a refund for something. And I've been dragging on and on. And we would call back and I would firmly but yet kindly we need our refund. We need our refund. Well, it's coming. The, the funds have been released. Well, when's it coming? The funds have been released. They were released to your bank. I call my bank. Mr. Herod, we don't have any record. The funds have not been released. What? Okay, call them back. The funds will be released. The fund, you see the pattern developing here. But the day finally came when I called. And the company said again, well, the funds have been released. Check with your bank. I checked with the bank, and there they were. Hallelujah, thine the glory there was verification what was just words now became reality what had been an idea that sounded good now had been verified this idea of saying well I am forgiven I'm right with God we think man that sounds good I love that but how can I know that this God of peace has worked on my account because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ so he says by the blood of the eternal covenant that he has given God has intervened to give us a new relationship with him and because of that because the God of peace has brought Jesus from the dead and Jesus is the great shepherd and has given us eternal covenant now look at verse 21 we're ready for the prayer request may this God equip you with everything good that you may do his will that's his request in the midst of suffering, that you may be equipped to obey. That word equip means to make ready, to have the right stuff for the job. It means being fitted appropriately for what you are about to do. To be fitted appropriately for what you're about to do. It's one of the worst feelings in the world not to be fitted appropriately when you're in a task. Several years ago, Jody and I went to a conference in Chicago. This conference was in early April. Spring had sprung, and it was in Chicago. So Mark Herod thinks, spring in Chicago? That's going to be warm. It's not warm in Chicago in spring. It's by a lake. Did you know that? And it's in the north, and it was cold. In fact, my souvenir from that trip was a jacket that I bought. It's horrible to be in a place and not to have exactly what you need. That idea of equipped means that for whatever the circumstance is, God has and will equip you for exactly what you need. He did this with Jesus. Look back to Hebrews 10. I didn't put this on the screens because I thought, eh, it's close enough, let's go old school. Look to Hebrews 10 as an example of how God equips to give exactly what is needed to accomplish His will. 
Chapter 10, we'll start at verse 5. Now this is talking about Jesus' sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Now verse 7, then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, Jesus has come to do his, through God's will. What was God's will? That Jesus die as our sacrifice, or the sacrifice on our behalf. But guess what God did? Look back to verse 5. A body you have prepared for me. What was needed to accomplish the will of God was provided in the life of Jesus. And what you and I need to accomplish the will of God is provided by God. Now when we start thinking in terms of the will of God, and that's how it's phrased here, look again at verse 21. With everything good, everything that's beneficial, that you may do His will. Now when we read that, often when we think of will, we jump to, well, what's God's calling on my life? In the church, we think about will only in terms of vocation usually or, or marriage. God, what's your will for me? But I want you to understand God's will deals with how you live each and every day. If we were to do a quick survey of chapters 12 and 13, we would find commands. Now, would you agree with me that when God gives a command, we can say with confidence, that is God's will? Yay, nay, yeah. God gives a command, God wants you to do that. That's God's will. Guess what are some of the commands in chapter 12 and 13? One, he says this, worship the Lord your God with reverence and fear. That's a command. Guess what? God's equipped you to do that. God says, love one another with brotherly love. Practice hospitality. Guess what? That's a command. God's equipped you. You say, well, I can't love that person. You know what you do? You lay before God and you say, Father, I don't love them, but you do. Love them through me. Change my heart, oh God. Because we're going to see in just a moment the only way we can obey God's will is because God's working within us. But we'll get to that in a minute. Also, there's a command in chapters 12 and 13 to hold marriage in honor. There's the command to be free from the love of money, to be content. All those commands are possible because God equips us and God's working in us. Look back to verse 21. Okay, God, that God may equip you with everything good, everything that is beneficial, that you may do His will. Now look at the next phrase. Working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. I want you to think about how revolutionary that is. God is working in you, believer, to accomplish His will. He's not left you on your own strength. He's not left you on your own ingenuity. He's not left you with your own talents to do these things. He is working through you. And notice it connects it to Jesus, through Jesus Christ. It is the power of God working within us that enables us to fulfill the will of God, to do the things that God would have us to do. Now, that's hard to understand. We have the responsibility to obey. But we also know that it is God working within us. In many ways, we're like turtles on fence posts. If you see a turtle on top of a fence post, you can pretty much guarantee it didn't get there by itself. 
what we see God doing, He is doing through us. The best illustration I could give to communicate this truth would be two types of boats. If you go to the lake, you can either get in a rowboat or a sailboat. Rowboat, the power is you. You get in there and you row and you row and you row. And if there's movement, it's because you have propelled the boat. But what happens then whenever your strength gives out? But with the sailboat, it's different. Sailboat requires a sail to be raised and wind to move the sail. If the wind's blowing but your sail's not up, the boat won't go anywhere. And if the sail's up and the wind's not blowing, you won't go anywhere. I think it is the sailboat that is the picture of the Christian life. We know that we are dependent upon the Spirit of God. God is working within us to His glory. So as we move, it's not because we had the power, we had the ability. It's because if we are obedient, it's because God was working within us. And that also means when we fail, when we sin, it's because for some reason we chose to take the sail down and do the rowboat. It never works out good. So you see, the resurrection reminds us that God has equipped us to serve Him. When you doubt that you have the ability, one, realize, I don't have the ability. But I'm trusting the God of peace who brought Jesus from the dead, who is the great shepherd. He is equipping me and working through me to accomplish that which is pleasing to Him. So God, I'll trust you. We risk Will you find the courage to step out? The resurrection of Jesus reminds us we can. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now. Nathan and I are going to be at the front.